So about 25 years ago, I was up in uh, New Hampshire, Lake Winnipesaukee, New Hampshire. My grandparents would rent a house there every summer. And I remember gathered in the big central room with uh, extended family on my mother's side, and we were playing a game of Trivial Pursuit. Now, this was the old Trivial Pursuit. You remember the original one, the blue one, blue box one? Uh, one where I would always avoid the pink questions because they talked about arts and entertainment stuff from the 50s and 60s about which I knew nothing. But I remember there was one question while we were going back and forth uh, that, that stuck with me. And the question was, what is the shortest verse in the Bible? And I was intrigued by this, being a curious young teenager. And as I flipped over the card, I found the answer. The shortest verse in the Bible comes from the text that we read for this morning. John chapter 11, verse 35. The old RSV version, it's uh, translated simply as Jesus wept. The passage this morning is called the raising of Lazarus. It mirrors other stories of raising the dead that we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But unlike in those accounts, the raising of Lazarus here in in the Gospel of John uh, takes the central place of the Gospel. It is quite literally in the dead center of the Gospel. It is the final of Jesus' great miracles and the transition point to his final week and to his death. What's intriguing about it is that unlike the miracle stories of raisings that we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this one is significantly longer. But of the 45 verses that Eric read for us this morning, only seven actually have to do with this miracle. The other 38 provide the context. The focus of this text, when you read it through again and again, seems increasingly less to be on the miracle of the raising of Lazarus, and far more about Mary, Martha, Jesus, and the disciples' reaction to death. It really does come down to that verse, verse 35. The first death that I experienced in my life was my grandfather's, my mother's father's. It's probably a common experience for many of you here. Uh, My grandfather had been sick for many years, and I still remember when I was about five, him yelling at me at one point. Now, this was very out of characteristic, very out of character for him. And at the time, it really struck me and surprised me. Of course, looking back on it, I'm sure he was in great pain at the time. And my parents uh, took my brother and me to go see my grandfather during his last week in the hospital. It was my first time in a hospital room. I was six years old. And I remember walking into the room and seeing a man that looked vaguely like my grandfather uh, on the bed. I had a chance to say hello to him, and then my father ushered me out of the room uh, while my mother spent time alone with her father. The next week, uh, we were sitting around the kitchen table, and my mother, for the first time in my life, I saw her crying as she relayed to us the news that uh, her father had died. And then a few days later, we went to the visitation, and my grandmother was very happy because she thought that he looked so good that the embalmer had done a very good job. Uh, But this was the first time that my little sister had been around, and my little sister was so scarred by the experience that she had nightmares about it for the next uh, couple years. This experience of my mother's father's death 
contrasts quite sharply with the experience of my father's father's death some uh, 13 years later, which was the next death in my family. And my grandfather died at 95, my father's father. He, although he had cancer for five years, he was always strong as an ox. He lived farther away, and I was a freshman in college, so I didn't experience any of his decline or final days. I remember being called back home when he died. What I do remember also is my father going off into his office by himself to compose what he was going to say at the funeral. And my father was a very articulate man, someone uh, who had quite a way with words, and I was eagerly anticipating how he would eulogize his own father. And the thing that sticks in my mind the most was how short and perfunctory his remarks were. And then, even though I was not that old, it, uh, it struck me how complex some of our relationships can be with our parents. Now, sometimes that comes out even, and especially, at death. My own father was diagnosed uh, with stage 4 kidney cancer uh, in May of 2003. At the time of his diagnosis, he was given less than six months to live. He died a little over five years later in July of 2008. The experience was an interesting one for me and one that I experienced, the one that I had up close and personal with someone dying, especially since it lasted such a long period of time. And just like with my father's father, my father and I had a very close yet also complex relationship. And when my father died, I still had quite a bit of anger and strong feeling towards him and did not speak at his funeral. I remember visiting his grave a couple years after he died. Uh, and feeling very few emotions. It took about five or six years for me to really start to miss him. I miss him a lot now. Again, our relationships can be complex. That can be highlighted in death. When you work in this job, you see a lot of people die. That's part of the job. It's one of the privileges of the job. I've seen some people die in their homes, some people die in very nice hospice facilities, uh, some people die in intensive care units, some people surrounded by friends and family, others uh, with maybe one person or no one there in their last moments. But by and large, the majority of experiences, I would say, are quite profound, spiritually profound, as a family gathers and witnesses the last moments of someone's life something holy in that experience. The best-known book on death uh, that people have read is by a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross called On Death and Dying. This book was written some 50 years ago and remains in print and remains a classic. Kubler-Ross begins her book in her opening chapter talking about our culture's avoidance of death. We live in a culture unlike 100 or 150 years ago, when death was much more present in our lives, health care was not nearly so good, and everyone was living close together. As someone was dying, it was an experience of a whole community. It was an experience of the whole family. Death became something that was a regular part of life. Uh, But Kubler-Ross brings up the fact that after World War II, with increasing medicine, with people spreading all over the country, uh, and increasing commercialization, all of a sudden death became something taboo became something you were never supposed to mention, never supposed to talk about. In fact, when I was uh, preparing the weekly update for this service, 
I almost left out the blurb that talked about this sermon because I didn't want to indicate that it was talking about death for fear that people wouldn't want to come and hear about it. It's a tough subject to wrestle with. But at the same time, as Kubler-Ross points out, there is no more universal experience in our human life than dealing with death. Regardless of all the advances in science, uh, the mortality rate stays pretty consistent at 100%. (laughs) At some point during our lives, we will lose lose people very close to us, people that we love dearly. And therefore, I thought it would be uh, irresponsible of me as a pastor to avoid the subject of death simply because it's uncomfortable. Because I think if there's any place to talk about it, we should talk about it here. Kubler-Ross famously breaks down uh, the stages of grief into five stages. Now, people writing since her book came out have critiqued how schematically she lays this out, saying that grief, in fact, is much more complex than that. But nevertheless, the stages that she marks out do represent real responses to death, dying, and illness. And we see them illustrated pretty remarkably in our passage for this morning. It indicates that the writer of the Gospel of John had himself experienced death in some real way. And in this chapter, conveys some of those experiences. The first stage of grief, according to Kubler-Ross, is denial. Avoidance. You get a diagnosis and you pretend the diagnosis is not as harsh as it is. Or you don't want to hear the diagnosis. Or you refuse to talk about it. You can even read Jesus' reaction at the beginning of this text in that same light. Someone whom he loves, one of his close friends, he finds out is ill. His response, rather than rushing to his bedside, is to give that person space. It's only natural. My father was ill when he had his five-year cancer period. His mother uh, had very severe dementia. And she didn't remember him or anyone else in the family. And yet, unlike his sisters, my father did not go visit his mother. She only lived about 35 minutes away. I think one of the biggest reasons is is that he didn't want to visit her because then it would bring him face-to-face with his own death. And at that point where he was, he didn't want to deal with it. Understand that. The second stage that Kubler-Ross talks about is anger. Something that any of us who have gone through grief have experienced. I know firsthand that sense of why me or why to that person? Why does this have to happen? Can't it be otherwise? In our passage of this morning, you see this reaction so well illustrated in, their, in, in Mary's response to Lazarus' death. Mary, unlike her sister Martha, Mary stays behind in the house. Why? Because she's still mourning. She's going through the mourning rituals that happen in the house with her friends. Martha runs off to see Jesus, but for Mary, she's still in a different place. And when she eventually is invited out and she does go see Jesus, what does she say to Jesus? Lord, if you'd been there, my brother would not have died. You can almost sense the anger in her voice. Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died, but you weren't. Understandable reaction. My father was sick. I remember my mother saying time and again, why was it him, not me? My father had, very strong, had a very strong constitution. His family all lived to be in their 90s. My mother's family, on the other hand, generally tended to die in their 60s or 70s. 
And so my mother always assumed that she would be the first one to go. It never had occurred to her that my father might die first. And time and again, she just had this bubbling up anger of why am I the one who has to be left alone? Even Jesus, you see this anger, you see this reaction with. In the passage, it's translated as, uh, it says here, if you look at the, right around the time when Jesus was weeping, it says that he was greatly disturbed. The Greek word for greatly disturbed has a hint of very strong anger in it too. And it's one word that comes up twice in this passage, where he gets greatly, deeply disturbed. Angry here. The third stage that Kubler-Ross talks about is a bargaining stage. It'd be a less common stage, but still, it's like you can see like a little five-year-old bargaining for things. Well, you know, let's say I do this, then can I go get the candy? But we see this stage coming up with Martha's reaction in our passage. Martha runs out to Jesus and she says, Lord, if you'd been there, my brother would not have died. And then she follows up with another sentence. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. It's like, I'm being the good person here. I'm meeting you now in tit for tat. Let's see something happen. The next stage, according to Kugler-Ross, is one of depression. One that all of us who've gone through death or experienced death uh, have gone through in one stage or another. We see it in Jesus weeping. Him being deeply, not only somewhat angered, but also deeply troubled. My mother, uh, after my father died, my mother uh, fell into a very predictable depression. I mean, after someone dies, if you become a widow or a widower, yes, your friends will take you out to meals. Yes, people will bring meals to your house. People will give phone calls. But for the majority of time, you're left alone in your house. And I remember talking to my mother and saying, you should go see a grief counselor. Now, my mother was an old school New Englander, and so this, <laughs> the, the, the suggestion for grief counseling uh, was uh, politely dismissed. She's also very stubborn, uh, a very typical New England trait. And so uh, my, my constant repetitions of this refrain didn't help. But what my mother did do where she got a dog, which she called her little white ball of fluff, a little Havanese dog uh, that she called Mackenzie. Now, when my mother got Mackenzie, my mother was not in a great place, so, uh, so she wasn't so good about training Mackenzie. So Mackenzie pretty much did whatever Mackenzie wanted in the, in the house, including both urinating and defecating wherever she wanted to. So when you'd walk into the house, my mother had laid out like these pee-pee pads like all over the house in the hope that she could catch Mackenzie doing, <laughs> doing her business on a pee-pee pad rather than somewhere else. But either way, it didn't bother my mother particularly. And so you'd go into the house and this dog would just drive me nuts. But when I saw how important the dog was to my mother, how much of an impact it had on my mother to have something that she could love near her every day during that difficult period... In spite of my initial resistance to Mackenzie, I did start to love that dog too. Because that dog meant so much to someone that I cared so much about. And I still remember when my mother and my stepfather started dating. Uh, My stepfather also wasn't too keen on Mackenzie. (laughs) But he figured out pretty quickly that Mackenzie was a non-negotiable part of the deal. (laughs) 
And again, to Mackenzie's credit, she is very loving, and so my stepfather uh, has come around <laughs> to Mackenzie in spite of her quirks. The final stage of grief, according to Kubler-Ross, is this stage of acceptance. A stage where we can acknowledge the fact that everyone dies, that death is a part of life. We acknowledge the intense pain that comes with that, the depression that comes with that, the anger that comes with that, the experience of separation and loss that comes with that. Yet at the same time, come to a place where we realize that it's still okay. Still find a sense of peace in the midst of that. Sometimes it happens sooner than others, sometimes it takes years for this to happen. It's okay. The Christian tradition has a lot of things to say about death. Now, usually you would think that Christianity has sort of this uniform portrait of life, death, and resurrection. But when you read about Christian history and Christian theology, you realize that that's not the case. That they were a pretty broad range of views on death. Now, the Gospel of John is interesting because unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Gospel of John has what's called realized eschatology. Some of you are thinking, what on earth is that? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is this expectation of the parousia, of the second coming. This is particularly prominent in Matthew. Jesus will come again and set all things right. What's unique about the Gospel of John is that there is not this anticipation for the end times. Quite surprisingly, it does not appear in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, you have, again, this realized eschatology, that you're living in the end times right now. This is exemplified in the so-called I am passages that Jesus says throughout the Gospel of John. I am living water. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. And then most powerfully and most importantly in this passage, I am the resurrection and the life. There is a present tense notion of that. That whoever, live, that whoever, believe, that whoever lives and believes in me shall never die a call to a present tense action of trying to live out your belief in Jesus right now to experience the end times. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth did not believe, uh, quite controversially actually considering he was pretty conservative, did not believe in everlasting life. Karl Barth did not believe that once you die you merely switched horses and kept on riding as Ludwig Feuerbach famously quoted. Instead, Bart said that he, that he believed in eternal life. That is, those moments during our life where we had a connection with the eternal, a connection with God. And that it was in those moments of our life where we actually could have those experiences, those divine experiences, where we could see the true sense of eternity being rested in God's hands. For God, according to Bart, all time is the same. God views all time as one. While we might experience different moments, God can experience all moments at the same time. And therefore, there is a sense of having an eternal connection with God as an invitation throughout our life. I unfortunately was not present when my father died. I had, for several months, had scheduled that I to officiate a wedding uh, in Cambridge, and so I had to leave to go officiate this wedding and I hoped to make it back before he died, but unfortunately he died when I wasn't there. But my mother, 
as my father was taking his last breaths, my mother uh, actually crawled into the bed, hospital bed with him to hold him close. Wanted to share one more connection, one more deep hug, one more sense of spiritual oneness before he passed away. And talking with her about all those difficult five years of cancer, and if you've been a caregiver in that position, you know that this is not something that you'd wish on anyone. In spite of all that, that difficulty, she said she never regretted any of those moments. Now this morning I could have talked about something a lot more happy, a lot more joyous. But I don't think it would have done justice to the text. Not only that, it would have missed the important point that as difficult as death can be, as difficult as those end moments can be, they can also be moments where we profoundly experience God, that which is eternal. 